Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. It's June 2023 and it finally feels like summer is in full swing in our fine city. We've just finished up another busy City of Literature Festival weekend at Norfolk and Norwich Festival, including recording some very exciting conversations for the podcast, which will be landing in your ears very soon. In this episode of The Writing Life, NCW Programme Manager Rebecca DeVald had the pleasure of talking with Catherine Greger and Caroline LaMarche about the process of writing and translating The Memory of the Air, a novella by Caroline which explores a universal experience of gender and sexual violence and challenges common notions of victimhood. Catherine Greger is a writer and translator. She primarily translates from Italian and French with the odd brief project from Russian and has so far translated over 30 books. Caroline Lamarche is an award-winning author of 11 novels and six short stories, as well as being a poet, scriptwriter and author of radio dramas. The Memory of the Air was translated by Catherine and published in English in 2022. Previously, Catherine has said that working with Caroline Lamarche's book is an honour and a joy. Every word, every comma counts. Her focused writing encourages a sense of intimacy with the text. Transforming the book into English feels like embroidering with silk thread the image traced by the author, because only silk, the finest quality in needlework of the highest precision, will do. Together with Rebecca, they discuss how Catherine first discovered Caroline's book and the experience of it being rediscovered and translated in a post-Me Too era. Caroline talks about the process of drawing on personal experiences to write this book and about finding her voice. Please note that this conversation does contain references to domestic violence and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. So now I'm delighted to hand over to Rebecca in conversation with Catherine Greger and Caroline Lamarche. Hello and welcome. Um, Thanks so much, Caroline and Catherine, for being here um, on This Writing Life to talk to me um, about The Memory of the Air, um, the book that, Caroline, you wrote and Catherine, you translated. Um, I was wondering whether we could, before we dive into our conversation about translating um, this memoir, novella, that would be one of my questions anyway about the genre. But if one of you maybe wants to give us a summary of the book, how you would describe it in your own words. Well, Rebecca, um, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think it's difficult to summarize this book because it's not a story from beginning to end. It's a, I would say it's an introspection. It's a process of various events in a woman's life, the narrator's life in this case. Um, the, there is, I don't think it's a secret that there is a rape in the, in the book, but the rape in a way, we're actually told about the rape only towards the end of the book and it's only a few pages. So there's a lot more to the book than that horrid event. It's about a woman's processing of her surroundings, the rape, but also um, a past relationship with a man who gaslighted her for years. It's the way she responds to her upbringing, how her upbringing has equipped her or not, or partly for the life she has. So, and I'll let Caroline take over. Well, uh, thank you, Catherine, because I think it's so... Um, a very nice way to summarize the book. Uh, in fact, uh, it begins with a dream. And this uh, woman, she dreams that uh, there is a dead woman 
in a dream. A very quiet, smiling woman, very quiet, like herself. Herself after 20 years of being raped. She, well, she didn't want to think about it unless a man she loved very much told her, they were always fighting and told her, well, you are the violent one. You told me you have been raped. You see, you have not solved this thing of the, about the rape, so you are violent. And this is a second rape, I think, a second violence, which brings the, the story of the first rape, which was by a man with a knife. So, I mean, it was not only rape, it was almost imagining you, you will be dead uh, in, in, in a quarter of an hour, I mean. This man could be mad, you know. And so, it's, I think it's, uh, uh, well, Catherine could tell it uh, better than me because she discovered the text, I wrote it. But um, I think it, uh, it is quite uh, unemotional and still very emotional because I like to write uh, in a quiet way, almost a cold way, quite ironic. And I think it's not the usual way uh, about uh, the rape stories. And uh, I like uh, when the angriness, you say, is, takes, takes a time and is very strong because it becomes cold, you know, and very precise. And that's the way I wrote this book after years. And so um, it was written before me too and translated after me too. And that is interesting because the translators, and I, I am very lucky to have such wonderful women translators, uh, they discovered the text after me too, and I think this text is new again, is new born again. I wrote it in uh, 1940, in, in, uh, sorry, in 2014, yeah. You said that, um I picked up on you said, oh, you you wrote the text, but Catherine discovered the text, which I feel like maybe says something about your relationship. Or, and, and you said that again when you said the other translators of the book has been translated into other languages as well. Can you maybe say about what you mean about the translators discovering the text? Do you mean the, the physical text itself and what they find in the text? That's a question for Catherine, isn't it? <laughs> well, you said about you you use the word this you feel that translators have discovered your text so that's um what rebecca would like you to expand on okay well right. um as you know i am published by by gallimard uh, with a very big uh, publisher and I'll, i am very happy to be with them but uh usually um I am discovered really by people who, like Katia, who, who find my book and it's, it's a kind of attraction, very strong. 
And then they decide they will do everything to, to, in order to bring that book in another language. And I think I am very lucky to have, uh, to have them. And I think Catherine could say, like others, that my writing seems simple and clear, but it's not so easy to translate because there are many layers in the text. I would definitely agree with that. And that's what drew me to the book. The writing was the first thing that, that drew me to the book. Um, in a, at a time where I feel so many books are overwritten. It, it, the, every word counts because there are no extra words. And it's, um, it, I actually found it surprisingly easy to translate. And that's because it's so clear. The words are not ambiguous. There are no frills. Um, there are no ambiguities. You know what the author means. You may not know it mentally, but you know it emotionally. It's very, it's crystal clear. And I respond to writing like that very much. Um, as a translator, as you know, we, we rewrite something and we, we can be, we have a critical eye in the way that perhaps if we don't translate, you have no need to have. For example, I don't know, a, a, you may look at someone and say, oh, look, what an attractive person. Whereas the, a medic will say, well, have you seen those varicose veins? Have you seen the rings under the eyes? Have you seen, you know, the color of the skin's not quite right? There's a health issue there. And that's what the translator does with the text. Because when you're rewriting it, you notice so many flaws. You notice all the bits that, you know, I guess when you read the book normally, you just skim over without really realizing it. Because, and in this case, it was such a joy not needing to give a, the translation a polish. It was such a joy actually to be faithful. Translating is like a dance. Um, for, for all the, translate, the fact that translators are considered as writers, and, and we are, there is, somebody has to lead, like in a, in a, in a dance, in, in a couple. And the, the author needs to lead and needs to have a firm hand and needs to know where they're leading the other dancer. Otherwise, both tumble on the, in a heap in a most ungraceful manner. And the way Carolina writes, you know you're in good hands. You know, you know where she's going. She gently leads you and you follow. So obviously you need to know your steps. Any good dancer knows their steps. But there is that element of um, knowing you're in good hands and you do what you have to do because you're led um, very gently but firmly and clearly. Well, I, I, um, I could add that uh, the translators are, are the best, best allies, allies, des alliés, um, allies of a writer. They are the most wonderful readers, and sometimes they uh, tell me uh, something about my text. I, I didn't see well, but um, so I am also in good hands with Catherine. No, that's yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering because you already talk about the sort of intimacies of your relationship with the text and and with each other. I was just wondering whether, on a more practical note, you 
could take us back to the beginning of the discovery process. Catherine, how did you discover Caroline? How did you discover the memory of the air before it was the memory of the air? Well, I discovered, I met Caroline through my husband, Howard Curtis, who had translated one of her previous novels. And then when we were living in Brussels, Caroline um, gave me La, the, La Mémoire de l'Air as a gift shortly after it was published. So that's how I, um, that's how I discovered it. I, I read it to be polite, but I actually, after the first page, I thought this is in an extraordinarily written book. And how did it go from there? So you are the translator who falls in love with the book. What do you do? <laughs> What do you do? You start, you start studying publishers' lists to try and see if it'll fit anywhere um, in our very poor translation market in the English language world. Um, so I submitted it to, admitted not many publishers because I needed to find the right one. I submitted to, I think, one or two um, earlier on and then I stopped I didn't submit to anybody for a few years because I couldn't find somebody I thought would be give it the right home. And then when Aina Marti set up Eloise Press and I spoke to her and discovered more about her publishing, budding publish, publishing company, I thought, I think this is the right place for Caroline's book. And I mentioned it to um, Aina and she read it and she also loved it. And uh, the rest, as they say, um, is history. So sometimes you have to write for the right time and for the right place. Yeah. Um, I, th well. I think it's the most important and uh, in the translations of my books in Netherlands, Spanish and English now, uh, I must say there are young publishers uh, very um, active and keen on, on defend and uh, the books they publish And their choice with French literature is is very interest, interesting. Um, among the, their titles uh, are are uh, writers I I like in France, in fact. So I am in a good company. <laughs> oh, we, yes, And we say that in French. Être en bonne compagnie. Yeah, no, very, no, very good. Um, and obviously, Caroline, you speak English very well. Um, I don't know if you also speak the other languages of the other translations, but in terms of practicality of working together, do you do you read Catherine's translation? Do you kind of give feedback on the do you give feedback on the English translation or answer? Yeah, Catherine's nodding as well. <laughs> well, uh, I always let the translator work. And if uh, she or he needs to ask me some question, I am there. I answer very fast and uh, I like that. And um, uh, every time I am, um, I am, I find it so beautiful to read your own text in another language. I, I can read 
um, English, I can read Spanish and a bit of Netherlands and Italian. And I think it's like discovering your book again, even if you have written it a long time ago, it's all new and you uh, recover the emotion uh, uh, as the day when you, you wrote it for the first time. And uh, it's because, you know, you write a book, you, ne you never read again, you forget it, other books come after, after it. And then suddenly, reading it in another language with a beautiful translation, it's like recovering all the emotion when you wrote it for the first time. That is a wonderful experience. And even in another language, I don't know, um, I can, by the music or the rhythm, I can uh, find my text again, you know? Yeah. It's a question of rhythm and music also. I was first a poet, I, am, I still am, and so when a translator can, uh, in the translation, give back the rhythm and the music of the text, the energy, I prefer this word, uh, then it's, it's fantastic. That's beautiful. And there's also something amazing about the, the book having undergone such a journey already, because you said you wrote it before Me Too, mm -hmm. then obviously Me Too happened. And then did some of the translations happen straight away when the book was published? And there's only the English one that's a bit later? No, or no, did, no. Um, the, the Spanish and the Netherlands um, were published uh, five years or four years after the, the publishing by Galipa, yes. Like it mm -hmm. was the right time, you know. Yeah. Um, because I was wondering whether that is something that obviously like is a is a marker of a great text that it can like live through years and through changes and actually almost anticipate changes as well and whether that's also for you as the writer kind of forced you to go back to a text because you will you you have written books since then obviously as well so it's an earlier text um, and what that experience is like to kind of go back to a text that you actually wrote years ago and maybe to some extent have already had a bit of closure on or have like kind of, you know, you've done, you've done the public, you've written it, you've published it, you've done the marketing of it and then maybe there's a way of moving on and then there is, the translations are coming and you're going back to this text and a text that has, as we discussed already, a heavy subject matter as well. And um, I was wondering whether, what that was like to kind of revisit this um, text. Well, um, for me, this text is still living, it's quite recent, and it's one of my texts I prefer, in fact. And so, when people ask me, which of your books do you advise me to read? Well, I have very varied books, you know. Uh, I am quite eclectic. I like to to speak about um, the book who had the, the Goncourt uh, de la Nouvelle, this prize, very important for the short stories. Uh, and that was uh, four years ago. But 
I often say the memory of the air. Yes, really. Uh, and I know why. <laughs> so, so it's fresh. It, it's always fresh for me. You, you don't forget this kind of experience. And there are so many women and young women who have uh, gone through that. But every story is different. That's why it's not enough to go to the police. You have to find your own words. And I worked a lot. Well, I wrote it quite fast, but I wait a long time without writing anything about that. Uh, I thought I would never write about this rape, my rape. But another violence, domestic violence, came, and then the text came, and the, the dream about the dead woman. And I had to meet this dead woman inside me, and to ask her her own story, and I found the words. And that, I think this book made of me another woman. I think if I hadn't written this book, I would have stopped writing. That's maybe why it's so important to me also. Yeah. Because when you say, uh, because if you fail to, if the book is not in the right place to write writing, you can experiment another form of rape that means the reader don't, don't like it or you get very bad critics but for this book it was all the contrary it was a risk but i got a lot of respect after having published it yeah catherine i was wondering how you how you deal with that responsibility if you're because as translators obviously we have a responsibility to the source text and to the source author and to you you were talking about being being faithful to it and and different translators will have different interpretations of that but when it's a difficult subject matter and it's also a very personal subject matter of something that um, is influenced by what happened to the author how how do you deal with sort of handling handling the text but also in terms of a personal experience of like rewriting that trauma in a way as well well i think possibly how does a translator deal with it using the present simple well um maybe it's not appropriate because you deal with every book and every author differently there isn't there's no hard and fast rule as to this is how you deal with it except to say that you deal with it with as much respect as you can um with as much um kindness compassion and but respect covers all of those anyway um i well it's a it's responsibility it's also an honor it's also um a privilege to be able to convey um, something so traumatic and uh, so so beautifully and sensitively and well sort of convey expressed in the original to an audience of uh, readership in another language so 
I tend to respond to all my translations sort of intuitively before I respond to them so cerebrally. Um, that's just the way I am. So I tend to do what, it's an awful expression, what feels right. But that's how I, that's how I respond to all my texts. Um, if I can't respond to them emotionally, intuitively, then I'm translating the wrong book for me. And I don't think empathy is necessarily that vital, but I think a certain amount of sensitivity is. Um, so I'm not sure if I really answered your question correctly. <laughs> um, no, you absolutely did. I was also, um, this is better bit unfair, but I've got a quote, Catherine, one of your quotes actually on on the translation of and that this is also what prompted it. Do you mind if I read out? It's um, you will be familiar with it. But you said about um, working with Caroline Lamar's book is an honor and a joy. Every word, every comma counts. Her focused writing encourages a sense of intimacy with the text. Transforming the book into English feels like embroidering with silk thread the image traced by the author, because only silk of the finest quality and needlework of the highest position will do. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> oh. How do you? How do you? Um, darling, I say so many things. I can't. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, on a serious note, yes. No, I think. Um, no, I definitely. I, I, I meant every word of that. Yeah, I think that's what. So my, the first part of my question was about the intimacy, and the second part is about precision, the highest precision. How do you? How many drafts do you do? How often do you chip away at things? Because you actually said at the start it was quite. It came to you quite easily because it's so precise. But how how do you achieve that same level of precision in a translation? Well, first of all, I um, I actually do very few drafts. Okay. I basically do three in most things I translate because my first draft takes a long, long time. I don't I don't leave any gaps. I I will. I, uh, my first draft is as close to the final draft as it gets, because the only gaps I leave, I leave, are where I need to ask the author something. I feel like I'm not content if I, you know, if I go to bed at night and I think I've got that gap there. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I didn't solve that. Um, I, I just doggedly solve all the vocabulary, all the meaning, everything in in the first draft. Partly because, because I work so in, kind of intuitively, if I don't deal with what the intuition tells me at that moment, I forget. So I get back and I haven't dealt with it. I've forgotten what I meant to say. So I need to find what I need to say there and then. Also because I actually get bored rewriting translations too many times. I'm sorry, that's just you know, sue me. Um, so the first draft is what I really want to do. Mm. This, then I, if time allows, um, I will have, uh, obviously I'll leave it a while, maybe a couple of weeks. That doesn't often happen in real life. But in this case, it did happen. I had that luxury of that couple of weeks to put aside, then revise it, and then another couple of weeks where I could do the final draft. And that, that is a bit of luxury that hardly ever happens. Um, but I was given a generous deadline 
and again, precisely because I felt this text so so vividly, it was perhaps easier in inverted commas um, get it as right as possible than perhaps texts I, I find I fumble through, wade through lots and lots of unnecessary words. You think, which one do I leave? Oh my goodness, this person's used five synonyms in the same sentence. Um, it, in this case, because it was so clear, it was actually the, the process was a lot smoother. Caroline, you were nodding at some point um, when Catherine was talking about her process. I was wondering whether your writing process is, is similar. Is it is it quite intuitive that you write and then the first draft is already pretty much perfect or are you are you an editor of your own writing? Well, I was nodding at the first draft because um, I need my uh, unconscious to, to talk. Um, you don't have to, to think a lot. You have not to be mental, but emotional. And then afterwards, uh, I rewrite and write and rewrite, but it doesn't change much, but all is in the deta details. And I let also quite a time. Um, I think time is an ally of the writing and translating because sometimes, sometimes you feel desperate about the text and you let it some time and you reread again and you found the, the solution very easily. So, um, so that's uh, first this text was written for uh, the radio because I didn't want it to be published. And so I wrote it in a way uh, for the radio, for radio play, in fact. And then it was um, uh, written uh, at uh, Avignon, uh, Festival d'Avignon. Um, uh, and uh, then I thought, well, now maybe I can think about publishing it because many people heard it in Festival d'Avignon, and um, so uh, that was written by a very um, famous uh, French uh, comedian uh, who is Dominique Blanc. So this confidence of Dominique Blanc and France Culture allowed me to think about this text about uh, publication by Gallimard. And I must say, the man I loved so much and who was violent and also um, very fond of literature, that's why I loved it him so much, told me, if you write about our story, I'll kill you. So, I had to go over that. That's why I didn't want this story to be a book. And I first asked to the first culture if they were interested. And then once published, this man read the book after quite a time. And I wanted to meet him again. And we had an ultimate big fight and that was really good in a sense because 
after the fight, he told me, but the book is very beautiful. Your writing is very beautiful. And that's why I love this man so much. Really, he was so clever for the writing. And I mean, literature won, really. And that's why I say this book, if I hadn't written this book, I wouldn't have never written another book because I was threatened. The man who read me told me, if you shout, I'll, I'll kill you. And the man I loved told me, if you write this book, I'll kill you. So I went over and I was helped also by, of course, uh, Dominique Blanc from Scripture, Gallimard, all these people are around me once the text is there. And now Catherine is there and you are there. And Aina Marti of your Louis Press. It's fantastic. But that is so powerful and probably, unfortunately, all too common, the silencing of women, not only the victimization of women, but then afterwards telling women to be quiet, exactly. to not speak up about it, to not make a fuss tonight. Um, and it's it's so impressive that you managed to, to get beyond that because it's not, I mean, it's not a light thing being told, I will kill you if you write a book. I mean, how many, how many people would say, I better not write a book then? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think, um, uh, how could I say, uh, you have got solitude, you mean? You are alone, but when you are a writer or an artist, you have also to have social cleverness. You have to accept the people who come and you say, oh, this one or this one could help me. I could maybe ask him or her to read my pages. And it begins like that. Has there also has writing the book and seeing it having an afterlife, as it were, has that also kind of given you, I don't want to use the word closure because it's not a sort of thing that is in the past, but has that helped you kind of reclaim your story as well and finding your voice through that? Well, I, I think really I became an adult after this book because uh, I began to write in a way more free, more freely and with uh, more pleasure. The pleasure now is really um, part of, of my work. I can say that since uh, the memory of the year. Yeah. I did have, because we were talking about details earlier quite a lot. Um, I, I know I didn't ask you to read any sections, but I did want to ask about the title itself. Um, specifically a the in the title, the memory of the air, um, whereas I feel like I would have maybe said the memory of air, but that is also a very different type. Can you talk about the French title and choosing the English title and why, what it signifies for either of you because you might have different associations with the title and why you chose it? Well, in French, it's because in the book, uh, this woman, she's alone with her lover and uh, it's a very violent couple and sometimes when is nasty or brutal, she's all, all alone with that. And uh, but uh, the, the the thought which helps her is 
Well, the air is around me and the air will always keep the memory of what I am living now all alone with this, uh, facing this violence. And I don't know, it's, it's my intuition, but it's also a helpful thought, I think. Um, the same way when I was raped, I, what thought helped me is to think of all the women in the world who experiment, we went through that, so many, so many, and during wars, it's even worse, uh, it's even more terrible. So, I think giving birth is difficult too, and when I gave birth to my first child, I thought about the other women too, I said, okay, it's very painful, but we are so many to live that at the same moment. And that's a memory not of the air, but of all humanity around us. Maybe it's the same thing, you know. Well, Gallimard told me, well, it's a beautiful title, but oh, oh, well, people know it's a rape. It's not very commercial. <laughs> so I said, no, but now everybody's happy with this title. <laughs> well, I thought about it a long time, the memory of air, the memory of the air. And, but not, actually, I didn't think about it for a long time. I take that back. I thought the memory of the air was the only possible title. Because apart from the fact, grammatically, the memory of air might mean you remember the air. Mm. Can be that ambiguity. And I didn't want ambiguity. The memory of the air, it's the air that remembers, is the air around us that stores all that's happened and is happening and is filled with it. And that's what I wanted to convey. Yeah, and also it's the air of that day, you know, of that precise day. I think the translation in English is beautiful, the memory of the air. It's even maybe more precise than in French. I like that discussion of which one, which one's more precise now. <laughs> it's all about precision. But precision is a good thing. <laughs> precision is a is a uh, is an underrated quality. I think. Yeah, sure. Uh, because, as it is. Um, we can never completely and totally understand one another. That's just not possible. You know, if I use the word, I don't know, use the word, the word green, you will think of, I don't know, you'll think of an emerald, you will think of uh, a, a fir tree, and I will think of um, um, Iago in Othello. I don't know, I'm just saying, for, for argument's sake. So we need our words. The words we use to be as precise as possible, because as it is, they will never be precise enough, because words don't go as far as emotion. So we really, I think we need to try, um, because they're, they're like tools. I mean, you wouldn't want to sculpt a statue with a with a cleaver, would you? You'd need precision tools for that. And it's the same with words. Uh, words is the only thing we have. Um, so they need to be refined, they need to be polished, they need to be precise, they need to be like surgical instruments, they need to go exactly where you want them to go. Yeah, and I, I could add that we live in a very 
in a very emotional world, uh, world society, I mean, with a lot of confusion and uh, a lot of money case, you know, black and white. And that's why we need uh, to be uh, uh, precise. And we have also to, to leave space to the readers for their own emotions. And so uh, it's better not to say too much. Uh, I, I trust the intelligence of the readers. And so uh, I can uh, leave some silence in my, between my words. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. I think um, I as a translator I, and, a, and a reader, I, I, for my liking, there are too many books where the author guides your emotion. You think, well, I can guide it myself. Thank you very much. I think... I agree with Caroline entirely that you can trust the reader to fill the fill the space between the lines. And I think that's a compliment to the reader. And I certainly take it as a compliment as a translator that not everything is, although it's precise, there is that breathing space mm -hmm. for me to absorb. And I'm given room to process rather than everything being sort of minced and chewed up and fed me. You're obviously on the same page when it comes to um, what you think Letitia should do and, and how you approach your work. So I was wondering whether has this been a one-off collaboration or is there anything in the pipeline that you're working on together? Catherine, are you translating more of Caroline's work? Caroline, are you writing something that so Catherine can translate it? <laughs> oh, I wish it worked that way. <laughs> no, you know, there's that little person in the between called the publisher. Uh, <laughs> I mean, publisher in general, not not Eloise, but you know, the publisher is there. There's that there's a minor detail there, so it really depends on publish on the publisher or the publishers. Um, I mean, I I have I have translated a few uh, extracts of Caroline's work for the sheer pleasure of it, but they're sort of on my on the hard drive on my on my laptop. I would love to translate more. Um, for example, there's a, um, a, a not the latest, but maybe two books ago, um, Caroline wrote a wonderful um, book called La Fin des Abeilles, mm -hmm. the end of the bees. Again, do we say the end of bees or the end of the bees? <laughs> we say the end of the, the bees <laughs> or the demise of the bees, mm -hmm. um, which um, is a wonderful book. Um, and again, there is that precision uh, that gives you the room for compassion yeah. but again we are um, we, we, we need to we, I hope very much that um, either um, Eloise Press or another publisher will give another opportunity to Caroline's book I would love to translate it but ultimately what's, what's the most important thing is that the book's should be translated. Mm. Well, also I began to write quite late. You know, my first book was that I was 40. And uh, so I am a young author. <laughs> we can hope. But, um, well, 
let us hope. I have plenty of projects and I have beautiful things appearing now. I am a very, in a very good period, I think. And this translation is a joy for me. That is beautiful. Um, thank you so much. We're out of time, I'm afraid. But um, Caroline and Kathleen, thank you for such a, a lovely, intimate and candid conversation about the memory of the air and, and your relationship working together. And we look forward to many more uh, Catherine Gregor translations of Caroline Lamarche, obviously. So publishers, you've heard it here first. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. A big thank you to Caroline, Catherine and Rebecca for their time. And make sure you pick up a copy of The Memory of the Air at your local bookshop. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find National Centre for Writing at Twitter and Instagram, at Writers Centre, on Facebook, and you can sign up to our newsletter over on the National Centre for Writing website. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation today over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again, keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>